morning, everyone. We're carrying on in our series through the book of Daniel, and we are in chapter 7 today. So if you've got your Bibles with you, it'll be good to find chapter 7. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have the text up, but I'm also going to move about a little bit through the chapter, um, so it might not always be up on the screen this morning um, as we go through. Um, or you can just trust me as I read it. I'm reading from the NIV this morning as well, just if that helps you think, what translation is that? That's what I'm reading. So Daniel 7, um, and the book of Daniel is um, it's kind of in our Bible, situated towards the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and is a book that is set kind of chronologically towards the end of the story of the Hebrew Bible, uh, leading into the New Testament. And so it's, it's set in a time when the nation of Israel has been uh, exiled from uh, their, their country. They've been, the kingdom of Babylon has come through and has destroyed towns and cities and sort of laid claim to the area uh, of, of what we call modern-day Israel. Then it was uh, Judah, uh, and we've got Jerusalem, the capital city, at the beginning of the story, is kind of ransacked by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and um, a bunch of young, kind of wealthy, sort of political elite children, the up-and-coming generation, are taken back to Babylon. And Daniel and his three friends, uh, Azariah, Hezekiah, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Thought I'd remember it. We know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as their Babylonian names. But the four of them are brought to Babylon and they're told to dress like Babylonians, speak like Babylonians, learn the language, read the literature. They go through kind of like an intense Babylonian university finishing school where they become all things Babylonian. Uh, and they have this difficult situation where they have to work within the culture, living in Babylon, but also navigating how to remain faithful to God, how to remain faithful to who they are and to what they believe at their core. They have to navigate this, they have to work it out. It's difficult. And that's the story we've been reading up till now. What do you do when the, the world that you live in is going one way, but God calls us to be faithful in another way? So we've seen those stories you know, they're the Sunday school stories of, you know, lion in, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, the, the three guys in the, in the furnace thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, so that's where we've been. As we get to chapter 7, the book changes a little bit. And so you can see Daniel as a, as a book in two halves. The first six chapters are this narrative story uh, about human uh, circumstances and about uh, these uh, exiles removed from their country, remaining faithful to God whilst in Babylon. But the next few chapters from uh, 7 right through to 12 are a series of prophetic dreams and they are filled with some real weird stuff and some very complicated things and some strange images and it, it's daunting and it can put us off and we're reading through and we're like, wow, Daniel and the Lion's Den, what a story. It's a great story. Like I could see that. I could see that being made into a really good series on HBO or something. And then you're like, chapter seven, nope, tag out. That's, I don't want to see this story playing out on TV. It's too wild. It's too strange. Uh, and what happens, I think, what can happen, and we'd be, uh, it's totally fair, is that when we come to chapters like this, we wonder, how is this relevant to today? How does this fit with me and my situation and my story? There's many of us here that are dealing with 
stuff right now in our life. In fact, all of us are in some way and will be in some way. We know that intrinsically in life. We go through ups and downs, and when we get to a story like this, we're thinking, why is this relevant to me? In what way does multi-headed beasts and talking horns and dragons and all sorts, this is fiction, fantasy. How does this fit in with my life, this guy's strange dream? But what's happening is the same themes and ideas that have been happening in chapters one through six are now we're seeing them now from a different perspective. So actually, we, we see as we read this passage, we kind of go back in time and like peels back the curtain on the, on the events that we read and see what the reality of what's going on is, what's going on. And, and we call this type of literature apocalyptic literature, which is the Greek word for revelation. It's why the last book of the Bible is called Revelation is because it says this, in Greek it's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a revelation, a revealing, uh, an unveiling of who Jesus is. That's what the last book in the New Testament is. And the rest of these chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are forms of apocalyptic literature. And that means that they're filled with symbols and metaphor and kind of language that's meant to convey a picture, a big picture, not meant to be literal, not meant to be scrutinized, not meant to be kind of held up to current world events and said, aha, this is that, so that's this, so this is that. So that means in three years' time, this is going to happen. And people do that, of course, but I, I think that's a big mistake. We're supposed to see the general themes, ideas, and pictures that are going on here and, uh, and take home what I believe is a very powerful, comforting, hope-filled message, actually. And... One of the themes and threads that we've been looking at through the text has been uh, Daniel and his friends facing difficult circumstances, facing opposition from the culture and the world around them. And we've seen incredible acts of what we would look at and think is bravery, courage. Daniel not afraid to go into the lion's den. The, the three friends not afraid to go into the fiery furnace. It's easy to think that they are being incredibly brave and courageous. But I'd argue what's actually happening is that they are just full of faith. They have a hope in the future, a hope beyond the grave, a hope in something greater than what the rest of the world can see. And what we see in chapter 7 is a glimpse of what gives them that hope. Why are they able to stand in the face of persecution and opposition? Because they have a hope in something greater and bigger. And that's what we're going to look at today. So as we read through the text... We're going to look at the three main characters that are presented. So there's first the beasts, then there's uh, the Ancient of Days, and then there's the Son of Man. And as we look through, I've kind of loosely felt that what we're seeing here is the beasts are a reality of the world as it is. The Ancient of Days is the reality of God's sovereignty, and the Son of Man is a picture of hope for future salvation, a coming saviour. And so that's what we're going to read this morning. So if we'd like uh, to read uh, the first eight verses, uh, we'll read it in the NIV, as I said, and then we'll stop and have a little look at what's going on. So Babel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked 
And there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until his wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. Uh, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one. And it came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, now I've had some weird dreams, um, <laughs> uh, but this one's pretty weird. Uh, I hope you'll agree. And, uh, and it's, it's obviously um, ripe for picking over the details. Like, what are those three ribs that that bears you in? Surely those three ribs mean something. Three kingdoms, three... St and, and I've done uh, a lot of research on this passage over the last, like, three months. I've had a lot of time, and I've listened to a lot of uh, different people, and I've read a lot of different commentaries, and I'm yet, like, the list keeps going as to what each one of these different things can mean. It's exhaustive and contradictory. This is a very confusing passage. And I think that the problem is that the vagueness of what's going on can make us be tempted to think, well, we must fill this with answers. But I kind of think that's the mistake. But the point is, it's not meant to be this is that, but rather that we're seeing a picture of something that can kind of, it's like, um, maybe this is a bad example as I think of it off the top of my head. In the olden days, we had acetates. Do you remember before this, you had an OHP? We're all old enough to remember these. An OHP, you put it on, and it's like a plastic, and you draw on it, but you could lift it up and put it on other things, and it's kind of like a pattern that we can take and move and put around. Uh, and, and I think we'll see that as we look at what, what's going on here. Thankfully, a large portion of this is given in interpretation within the dream. We can look down to verse 15. So... As we go later on, Daniel uh, sees more things, and he sees a bunch of people that are there by, by a throne. He goes up to one of these people, an angelic being perhaps, and he says in verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, as we all would be if we had this dream. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. So I approached one of those standing there, and I asked him the meaning of all this. So, thankfully for us, he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Okay, so we've got a handle on what are these beasts? They're kings or kingdoms. Kings represent the kingdom that they're in. And so we can look now and think, is it possible to work out who these kings are? And for the first king, I think that it's quite easy. 
uh, the first beast is described as a lion with eagle's wings. Now, we know that the kingdom of Babylon, which is the first kingdom we meet with King Nebuchadnezzar uh, coming in and taking Daniel and his friends away back to Babylon, the first kingdom is represented as a lion with eagle's wings. And this is from the British Museum this is what's left of ancient Babylonian artwork representing itself. This, was, this wasn't made by Daniel. This isn't someone who's read Daniel's prophecy. This is what that nation referred to itself as. This isn't new to us. This is common. I'm from Wales. If you look up the Welsh flag, should have put it up there, shouldn't I? But you know it's a Welsh dragon. The Welsh symbol is a big red dragon. The English symbol is a big golden lion. Scotland has unicorns, and that's obviously better. So, um, you know, in the rugby, for example, you could talk about, you know, the, the, the red dragon versus the, the lion, meaning Wales v. England. That's how you could talk about countries by the animals that have, we've chosen to represent us um, over the years and through history. This isn't an unusual way of thinking about kingdoms. And for us, it is, until you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay, suppose... It's not that uncommon. But in Daniel's day, this was, this was very well known and very well understood. They would read these descriptions and go, aha, yeah, Babylon. That's Babylon. This is what we mean by its symbolic language, but if you know what the symbols mean, it's quite clear or relatively clear. Um, so there's also clues within the text. I find this, uh, this description of this first beast is very helpful because as a lion with eagle's wings, we read that the wings are torn off and then he's lifted upright like a man and given the heart of a man. And as we read earlier the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a fascinating king because he's both so arrogant and boastful and, and clearly wicked in many ways, ransacking nations and conquering uh, with great violence. He also has these moments of real faith. But there's a, there's a, a scene, and, and uh, Nina spoke about it in, um, it's chapter five, I think, where King Nebuchadnezzar, is it chapter five or is it chapter three? Oh, I've lost it now. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar is so proud and so boastful, and he has this vision, this dream, and Daniel says, listen, mate, it's bad news for you. If you keep going on the way you are, if you continue to believe in yourself so high and mighty that you're basically God, it's all going to end badly. You're going to be stripped of your power and your authority. You're going to be like a, a beast in the field. And that's exactly what happens. We read Nebuchadnezzar, yes, yeah, sorry, chapter four. We read about his transformation. It says this, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And so when we read in chapter seven of this beast, lion-like with eagle's wings, but the wings are removed, it's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Is his, what happens is in this moment of beastliness as he's um, kind of like an animal, he has a moment where he humbles himself to God and he realizes that he's just a human like everyone else. He's not God at all. What a fool he'd been. And he realizes that the God of heaven is the God of heaven. And it clicks in his brain. He's just a man under God. And it's restored. his humanity is restored to him. His kingdom's restored to him. And chapter uh, four ends with this beautiful, amazing testimony of God's gratefulness from a pagan king. That's the story that we read about this first beast. The second beast, the bear, 
I don't know. I don't know who that is. And you'll read commentators, they say this is the Medo-Persian Empire. But it could just be the Medes, and the third beast could be the Persians, and then the fourth beast is the Greeks. So, or it could be something else, and I don't have time, nor would I think many of us be interested in going through the historical descriptions and all of the stuff. But what's clear here is that these beasts represent something human kingdoms, and it hinges on who the little horn is a little bit, and uh, luckily chapter 8 comes back to this, so next week Josh can explain exactly who that is. He's walking out, he's leaving, he's gone, he's gone. Bye, Bye guys. <laughs> um, so it's almost not the point to look back and say who could these be exactly in history, because what's more, I think, important and more the point of what's going on here is this beastly nature. They're, it's not just a symbol. We read how in chapter 2, a very similar thing, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and it's of a statue made of different metals. And the metal starts with gold, Babylon, and it goes down, and it gets worse and worse and more corrupt and, and more fragile and more brittle till eventually the, the, the feet of the statue is just like clay and iron mixed together, not stable at all. And this rock comes and smashes the thing and is an everlasting kingdom. And you can see that that vision, that dream, is very similar to the one that we're having here. They're in concert. They're in parallel together. They're trying to tell us the same thing. In other words, there's kingdoms of this earth are just made things. They're just humans playing a power and authority. They're just people trying to rule, people like you and I trying to rule. And the, the image is that something happens when people get so much power and so much rule and so much authority that instead of it being this beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing, it becomes beastly. And this is a theme right back to the Garden of Eden. Because if you remember, God created the animals, the beasts of the field, and then separately created humanity to rule and to reign over them. We're not supposed to be beastly rulers. That's the contrast we're being painted here. We're going to go and see what real rulers look like. We're going to go ahead and see what real authority looks like uh, as we move on. But here, Daniel is seeing this terrible, terrifying picture of what it kind of looks like when humans try and rule and reign with their own power and their own authority. They're like animals. That seems a bit harsh. Um, but it's, it's the picture that's painted in, uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, is that Adam and Eve, meant to, to rule and reign in a beautiful and loving and caring and an amazing way. Instead, they're tricked, they're hoodwinked, they're deceived by one of the beasts, in fact, to, to decide to rule and reign in their own way. They, they, they think, I know better than God, so we'll take the fruit even though he said not to, and we'll eat it even though he said it will kill us. I don't trust him, I'm going to do it my own way. That's at the heart of every human being. And uh, it's, again, the interesting, as I've been dwelling on thinking on it, we've been um, in my school, I'm a teacher and I teach um, five-year-olds, and so at the moment we've been learning about life cycles and animals, and it's been wonderful. And I put on this video about salamanders. They're an amphibian, a bit like frogs. They lay frogs born in the, in the ponds, and then they kind of grow into tadpoles or larva, and then they grow and they develop, and then at some point they become salamander lizards, and they have to like get out of the pond. Um, but whilst we were watching it, 
and I'm, it was a video and there's some text and I was reading it, it all of a sudden said, at this stage, the salamanders start eating one another. And, and then the picture, you can, there's a picture of the screenshot that I did. And I'm like, so this comes up and I'm like, dude, that's my sister. And the kids loved it, howled in laughter. They're eating each other, that's crazy. But then one kid said, do we eat each other? And, you know, and the answer is no, of course we don't. We don't do that. But it's normal for us to think of that in the animal world. In fact, many creatures have inbuilt, in the text it said, it's many creatures have an instinct that if it moves and it'll fit in my mouth, eat it. You've got to survive. You've got to eat. You, if you're an animal, you, you live by your, your desires and your needs, your basic needs. You've got to fulfill them. We don't scold lions for killing antelopes. We, we just watch it on TV. And we're like, wow, isn't nature cool? But, but we don't do that ourselves. We live a different way. Did you know that humans are the only animals that elect to be vegetarian? Rabbits aren't vegetarians. They're herbivores. They can't eat meat. Actually, some rabbits can, I found out. I was researching this. Super creepy. But there's animals. Cows don't eat meat. Cows don't go, do you know what? I fancy eating chicken. Maybe chicken's delicious. They don't do that. They can't. They don't have the apparatus to do it. They're herbivores. No animal is a vegetarian. Oh, we are. We can choose to be. We can choose to do this. We can make a decision, a, decision, a conscious to choice to say, whoa, no, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do that. I want to deny myself something because I believe in something else. This is a uniquely human property. I would argue that this is what sets us, one of the, one of the many things sets us apart. We are called to live differently as humans than the animal world. I think we're like, yeah. But that's what's going on here, is that these kings aren't doing that. King Nebuchadnezzar's like, what? You won't bow down and worship me? I'll kill you. I'm God, surely you should do that. I want to be worshipped. So I, well, I, you know, he's got the power and the authority. It's gone to his head. And we don't need to look far to see that in the world around us, the rich, the powerful, living life for their own gains and their own desires to fulfill their own needs. And then we have these political systems that are built on serving the needs and interests of a group of people, perhaps. The greater good is, you know, a phrase that weirdly means something very bad. The greater good is at the expense of the individual, perhaps. But that is the picture that we see in the world around us to different degrees. And so, I've, I mean, whether it's helpful or not, last night at midnight, I drew this picture of a sliding scale of beastliness. And I think that the, the picture that's painted in Scripture is that humans are on a sliding scale of beastliness, each and every one of us, to some degree. We have a desire to, to, to feed and to do our own thing, to, do, to fulfill our own needs, even at the expense of those around us, and certainly at the expense of God's authority and what God said. That's probably very low down the list of, uh, of reasons why we would choose to deny ourselves. And so the kings that we're reading about are like way at the scale, total beasts. Um, but even perhaps on our best day, we find that like our hearts are, are not truly, truly submitted to God, truly living the way we were created to do, created to live, created just like in the garden as we were first meant to be. And, and we believe that the scripture tells us that the barrier for us attaining that is sin. The thing that's in our heart that gets in the way from being uh, truly human. Whether that's a 
a helpful image. Um, so, this is a great theme of Genesis. Humans are created to rule the beasts, not become them. But here we see a picture of human rulers are beastly. And there's a bit of beast in all of us. But what about the ancient days? Let's read on verses 9 to 11. And we'll see the true ruler of the universe. You see, uh, there was that little horn speaking boastfully. That little horn was, uh, was the horn that was on top of the beast that was greater and more scary than all the other beasts. Perhaps this is the Greeks, and that little horn is a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. His name literally means God, God eternal. I am God. That's what his name means. I think he had a very high opinion of himself. And what he did was he um, went to the temple in Jerusalem and he said, well, I'm God, so we'll sacrifice the Jewish people to me in this temple. So it was one of the most uh, unprecedented persecutions of, uh, of the Jewish people ever um, up until, of course, the Holocaust. Uh, and a terrible time in history. And uh, there's good reason to think that this is uh, what's being described here, and certainly perhaps into chapter 8, is, the, is, the, is a prophetic looking forward to this great persecution, and therefore giving the people of God a, a heads up as to what's on the way, and a hope for what uh, a true reality behind it all. Because as we read, this little guy uh, in verse, the end of verse 8, the little horn, is speaking boastfully, and verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the book was opened. And verse 11, it says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. There's this vision of these great beasts coming up out of the water. And Daniel's terrified, as would we all. But it's like this little horn walking backwards and forwards, saying his boasts. And behind him, here's this great even greater scene unfolding. And you kind of want to shout, look behind you as God, God sits down on this gigantic throne, this vision of purity, his white hair and his white clothing. It's like in a, in a dusty, dirty world of animals and marketplaces. To be white as wool and white as snow is a symbol of absolute purity and cleanliness and of, and of set apart, totally other to these um, terrifying beasts. And it's this picture of the Ancient of Days. He's the Ancient of Days because his kingdom is an everlasting, eternal kingdom. It will go. It's, he's got no beginning and he's got no end. Unlike these beasts, their kingdoms will come to an end. You know, you saw, if you go to London, the, great, uh, the, the, the British Museum, you can see what's left of the Babylonian kingdom in ruins. You can go to Rome and see the shattered remains of the Colosseum and all of these things. This is our, our greatest empires. What's left of them now? But God's kingdom rules forever. God's authority won't be questioned. With a word, 
it's a bit of an anticlimax after all of this talk of beasts. Verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 11, I continued to watch the boastful words. I kept looking until the beast was slain, his body destroyed. With a word, God just, right, that's enough of you now. Shh. Wow. He rules, he's sovereign, he's in charge. I think that picture, that image, seeing that is what steeled Daniel's heart. You might have noticed at the beginning of the chapter, it said in the first year of Belshazzar. This is a time jump. Actually, chapter 7 takes place somewhere, in bet- somewhere between chapters 4 and chapter 5. We've gone back in time now. Chapter 6 was um, a new king. It's the, the King Darius of the Medes. This is the vision that Daniel had in his heart. He had this picture when he faced the lion den. He knew no matter what these kingdoms threw at him, his God is greater. So, who's the son of man? Let's read our third person and end here with the son of man. It goes uh, in verses, uh, yeah, on from verses 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All people worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, the Son of Man. This is an extraordinary passage. The Son of Man is uh, something that... We've read uh, the New Testament. We've read the Gospels. We know it's there a lot. In fact, this is the term, the Son of Man is the, the term that Jesus used to refer to himself more than any other. It's 88 times in the New Testament we find it. Uh, his disciples referred to him as, as the Christ. They asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? And Jesus said, well, yeah, but I'm the son of man. And he referred to himself. It's almost a bit awkward to use the phrase Messiah. It came with a lot of baggage, but he preferred to use this phrase, the son of man. And it does mean uh, what it sounds like it means, a human, son of man, a human. We're all, if we're male, sons of men or daughters of, uh, daughters of men. We're, we, we all come from man. And the, the Original language, this is uh, written in Aramaic, this part of um, Daniel, is Baranosh, which is the same, comes from the same root as uh, the Hebrew Bar Adam, which is son of Adam. Adam meaning humanity. That's what Adam's name means, it just means human. We all are human, we're all in Adam. Um, and so Daniel, as he reads this phrase, and as this phrase is used actually quite a lot in the Old Testament, often means a human one. Simply put, a human one. And so Jesus, using this phrase, is, of course, identifying as a human. But there is a difference between being human and this son of man. And this was widely understood, that this son of man is something special, something different. I mean, if you went to someone and said, who is the person... Who is the person given authority and glory, from verse 14, sovereign power, 
that all peoples, nations, and men of every language will worship, and whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away? Whose kingdom is one that will never be destroyed? If you ask that question, you'd say God. Surely that's God. That's a description of God. But here in the vision, it's one like the Son of Man, a human one. This is a powerful and amazing passage. There's a contradiction. There's, a, there's, a, uh, there's like a, a tension here between two things. And what I think is going on is we're seeing the humanity of the person of Jesus, and we're also seeing the deity. We're seeing he's truly human and truly God here in this passage. Uh, we're also seeing his humility. I, I read this in one of the commentaries, uh, and I thought it was really helpful. Um, oh, I've lost it now. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is eternal in nature, but he left heaven's glory and took on human fe- flesh, becoming the Son of Man, born in a manger, despised and rejected by mankind. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. The Son of Man ate and drank with sinners. The Son of Man suffered at the hands of men. His intentional lowering of his status from King of Heaven to Son of Man is the epitome of humility. See Philippians 2 verse 6 to 8. He who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on the cross do you see the contrast between this ruler and the ones at the beginning of the passage beast-like in their pursuit of their own agenda their own aim their own desires just like the animals and this son of man suffering at the hands of men This son of man intentionally lowering his status, rightfully to be called king, so that he could come and die and become a servant for humanity. That's the picture of true ruling. Jesus saw it that way as well. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 26. At the end of his, uh, the last weeks, in fact, the last day, before he is crucified, he's brought before the, uh, the, the, the priests and the, the high priests and the kind of the court officials in the temple. And they're questioning him, trying to get him to trip up. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Just tell us, come on, let it out. Be clear with us. Do you think you're the Messiah? And Jesus says, you've said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quoting this passage, quoting Daniel 7, saying this is fulfilled now. I mean, they they get the meaning. They know he's not saying, oh, you're just a human like everyone else. When he quotes this, they know he's saying, I'm this figure in Daniel. That's me. That's who I am. I'm the one to whom authority and power is going to come. So the high priest rips his clothes and they, they execute him straight away after this. Jesus comes into his authority not by killing all the other rulers, but by being killed by the rulers and authorities of his day. Jesus gets his power by being put to death. Jesus gets his glory by being put to shame, and he's vindicated by first being vilified. It's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus 
Ruling looks like serving. This is what it means in the Garden of Eden to be made truly human, actually. To rule self-sacrificially, to rule with a, a love that puts others before ourselves. This is what Jesus taught us, and this is what Jesus modeled. And so that the question is, what hope do we have for ourselves then? Jesus did great. What about us? Well, if you just notice, and very quickly we'll end with looking down to a, what's fascinating in the interpretation. Daniel sees this vision of beasts, then a vision of the ancient of days, and then one like the Son of Man gets all this authority. But look down to verse 18, because what happens next is Daniel says to the, to the guy to interpret. And in the interpretation, as the angelic being interprets to Daniel, he expands on the meaning. And in verse 18, it says, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Suddenly, there's this holy people of the Most High where the Son of Man used to be. And again, in verses 21 and 22, it says, I watched this horn that was raging war against the holy people and defeating them. I watched until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people and the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Verse 27, it goes on. Then the sovereignty and power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to Son of Man? No, the holy people of the Most High. His, God's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. There's something happening. And I'll be very clear. What's happening here is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is this primary picture of who the Son of Man is. He's, he's the ultimate Son of Man. But we, his people, are also caused, called to rule and reign with him. It's here in Daniel. It's the gospel here in Daniel. Because, as the New Testament tells us, if we're in Christ, we benefit from everything that Jesus has won. His victory on the cross is our victory. His defeat of sin and death in the grave is our hope for victory over sin and death. And his exaltation and authority and ruling and reigning is ours. Ephesians says we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Our identity in Christ means that what happens to him happens to us. The examples used all the time of here's Jesus and here's us. And what happens to the Bible book happens to the thing inside. If I put it on a plane and it flies to Australia, the napkin goes to Australia too. We're in Christ, it says in Daniel chapter 7. That's an amazing prophetic word in, in the Old Testament, looking forward to a time when God's people join in with everything, not because we've earned it, not because we've suddenly somehow managed to find a way to do the right thing all the time, but because Jesus was perfect. He was the truly human one. So now in him, I did another little picture, now in him, we just jump over the bridge. We get moved. Our position is now, I'm a truly human one. Still on my best days, I'm over here. I'm still like, you know what, that's still my experience and that's the interplay, the difficulty between our position in Jesus and the reality of, of our human nature. There's a tension there which we could go into. So we're not perfect in and of ourselves, but we are perfect in Jesus because he's perfect. It's our identity. And so now we can be motivated to live in a way like he lived. So we're going to finish. If I can invite the band up.
as we land uh, this morning, at the start of the passage, we saw earthly rulers, barely human, beastly and animal-like, living after their own passions, but realizing that actually there's a bit of beast in all of us. The Bible calls it sin. And the call is to be truly human, to live for others, to serve, to rule in a way that puts others first, to be a servant king like Jesus. But we can't do it without our own, on our own. We need a new heart, which Jesus gives us. We need a new power, which is the spirit that lives within us. But we can confidently come to God the Father through Jesus the Son, because he's the truly human one who represents us perfectly. And so, being human represents us. Being God can infinitely rescue us from sin, death, and the enemy. Our faith and hope is in him. If I could ask us to stand, we're going to sing now. We're going to worship this one who came and died for us and served us. As we sing, uh, sometime in the middle, we're going to come and we're going to take communion. And I'll, I'll lead us through that. But let's, let's worship.